Good morning. I want to greet each one in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I felt led to continue on with my study in Hebrews, so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Time flies by. The last time when I looked at Jesus being our high priest was three months ago. And some of this will feel like repetition because Hebrews does flesh out a lot of things and some of it is, it's it's, it's interrelated, it's connected. And so it, it may seem familiar, but I wanted to look at this morning that just as it was important, it's important for us to understand that Jesus has become our high priest, that we no longer need earthly high priests. Pastors, ministers are not high priests today. We don't have to do sacrifices to provide forgiveness of sins. And if you're part of a church where that is the practice, please study Hebrews to look at why that's not biblical today. But I want to look at it from the angle of the fact that there are two covenants that God made with his people. And when I say his people, the first covenant was made with the children of Israel. And the second covenant he made for everyone, the Jews and the Gentile. But once again, thinking about why wasn't... Why weren't the high priest in the Old Testament good enough for the rest of history until the end of the earth? Most importantly, it's because God had promised something better. Even though it's the way he provided for people to make things right with him, to find forgiveness of sins, it wasn't ultimately the best plan or the one he wanted to bring out later. So let's begin Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a high priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I I can't put myself in the place of Jews when they would have first heard this taught. But it had to be shocking and a bit hard to understand for them. 
without the aid of the Holy Spirit to understand how things could change so radically from how they had been doing it for over a thousand years. And I'm sure many of them did not remember the promise that God had made. But we will turn to that promise now in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What do we see here that was different, that was not a reality for the children of Israel in the Old Testament? They could memorize God's word, but yet there was not this continual presence in their hearts the way we can experience today with the Holy Spirit. And also, It was a radical statement, and I'm sure many of them, when they heard this, when they would read Jeremiah, could not fully comprehend this, that their sin would be remembered no more. Because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, every year their sins were brought up before them, and they had to offer that sacrifice again. Their sin was, and I'll get into that more later too, but their sin was covered but not removed the way we think about it today with Jesus being able to remove our sin and I'm sure it was very radical and hard for them to understand but yet God was promising way back there from prophet Jeremiah that of what he wanted to do how he wanted to work in their lives now let's pick up again in chapter 8 of Hebrews <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continue not in my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the, I'm sorry, I'll stop right there. So God was recognizing that the covenant had been broken by the Israelites. And yet we don't see a judgment here of saying, you know, I can't believe they broke it. I can't believe they couldn't keep it. But I think God understood that it was going to happen. But it was all part of his plan. 
And I think that's one of the reasons we could say, well, why did God, if God knew that the old covenant would pass away, why did he even bother to do it in the first place? But I think, as he does other places, that he gives us choice. He allows us to fail so that we recognize our need of him. Had he sent Jesus right off the bat, before he did this, had the law and the, the Old Testament practices, I don't think that we would have as great appreciation for what Jesus did when he came and died for us. And so in a, in a way, they were an example, a, a practical example for us to see our need of God and what would happen. But God was recognizing here that that covenant had been broken. Not that, he, not that he broke his side of it, but that the children of Israel failed. And I, I'm not being critical of them. I believe that if I had lived under that same system, I would have failed also. Because of not being able to do it in my own strength. But we need God's strength to do it. Moving on to verse 10 then. For if this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put, and here we hear again, we hear what he promised in Jeremiah, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that, and I'll stop there again. What was he saying here? What was he trying to talk about? Didn't the Jewish people know God? Didn't they know his law? And yet we see very few of the Israelites being able to keep the law being able to remain faithful. It was very difficult. And I think it's because with the law, with the Old Testament law, it had a very hard time entering into their hearts and changing them. It was all outward. And it's something to keep in mind even today. And we need to be careful that our Christianity, that our difference makes a difference between us and the world is not purely just the outside but the inside is changed our hearts are changed we're converted and we're like it talks about here that the law of God the his will and his desire for us is written in our hearts and our minds it's on our hearts and minds every day I think for the children of Israel um, unless you were a priest or a scribe that studied it a lot. The only time you read God's word was when you would get together for the feast and for the sacrifices. But very few people knew God's word intimately. And yet, one of the things that God brought along when he, when after Jesus was here is we recognize the ability to, to have this word written down on a, in a way that many of us could have access to it. But that's come slowly even over the last 2,000 years. Even when 
Jesus was here on earth, they were still writing with scrolls and not with the books and the technology we have today. But in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. It's something that I thought interesting contrast. Jesus came, he was very, he made it very clear that he was not here to replace the law, but to fulfill it. He wasn't here to throw away all that they had been taught and knew. It wasn't that he was saying, you know, I'm going to give an ex- a bad example of Joseph Smith came along and he said, oh, the, the Bible's, and, and Muhammad did the same thing. The Bible's been corrupted. It's been, there's lies in it. It's been changed. You can't believe it. You've got to just throw it out and listen to me. Jesus didn't say that. He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to help you further understand. I came to call you to a higher calling. Not that the law is no good, but I've come to help you to obey it, to follow it. And so, in the, in the law was not thrown out. It was fulfilled through Jesus. But the old covenant was. And so, today you have people, there's even a few that have grown up Mennonite Amish who feel like the way to find God today is to become a Jew, is to, to convert to Orthodox Judaism. And yet we have God's word here in the New Testament that's recognizing that that is not God's perfect plan. We don't need to try to come to God under the old covenant because a new and a better one has replaced it. It doesn't mean that there are no, we need to be careful, it doesn't mean there are no external ordinances and practices. We recognize that. There are things that are on the outside that we do need to change. We shouldn't look like the world on the outside and then only say, well, only the inside matters. But the new covenant was different. It was a more personal, a more a, a deeper change. It wasn't just putting the right stuff on the outside, going and doing the right feasts and all that, but it was a change of heart internally. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, you don't need to turn with me, but you can write it down if you want to read it later. But it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And just as when Jesus comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit enters our life and makes us a new creature. We have a, an example or a parallel with what Jesus did with the old covenant. The old one is gone. It's done away with because of the new. The same way when Christ comes into our life, our old habits, our old struggles We need to put those things away with God's help and become a new person. Before Christ came, the only way to God was through the law 
and the ordinances. But thankfully, after Christ came, a better way was available. And let's continue on then in chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a world, worldly sanctuary, referring to the, the temple. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid around with gold. Wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over at the cherubims of the glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. I think most of us understand and have learned over the years of all the things that the Jews would do in their temple that was an important part of them being obedient to God under the old covenant. And I had to think as I was studying this, we even see similarities, I think, with Catholics, Orthodox churches, and, and you can probably find some more, where if you go into those churches, I had never been in a Greek Orthodox church until I went till we were in, um, in Israel last year. And it's just incredible the amount of decorations and, and ornaments and things that they have in there to try to, I guess, make it special and feel like they're honoring God. And yet it's try, it seems to me like it's trying to live under the old covenant. It's trying to come to God superficially on the outside. And they do things to draw up your emotion and to give you the sense of worship. But it's all external. There's, I would say, very little internal. And I believe that's similar to what the Old Covenant was. Nothing wrong. That's how God had it set up in the Old Testament. But when Christ came, that was no longer required. We didn't need to try to earn our way to God through rituals, through all these, like, like the, when you think of all the feasts that they would have to do throughout the year. Elaborate things. But it was how God wanted them to come to him at that point. But today we no longer have to do that. Picking up at verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone once. And this is talking about the Holy of Holies. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which, the, which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, 
I'm going to pause there again. First was all the things that were outside of the Holy of Holies that all the priests would do. And then where's the Holy of Holies? But as it talks about here, just the fact that the priest would, could only go in once a year, could only go in with the blood of lambs. And we have in Scripture <clears throat> the fact that they would tie a rope around the leg of the priest in case he failed to meet God's requirements and was struck down or would touch the um, Ark of the Covenant and would be struck down signifying that even he, in his high position, was not always perfectly fit to be there. And here it's talking about how that was pointing to something better coming. Did they completely understand it? No, I believe like the Bible talks about a veil being put over a a cloud that they could not quite grasp or see through to what God's plan was. And yet... It was pointing forward to a better, more perfect covenant. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, just thinking about the Holy of Holies and the veil that was there. When Jesus came then, that there was, a, there was a significant event here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. They believe that curtain was 60 feet long and 20 feet wide. Often in our minds, we think of curtains like we have in our houses. Most of us men could take that curtain and, if we wanted to, rip it. But yet, according to Josephus, I'm not saying that right. Josephus, thank you. I had it at home, but now when I tried to say it up front, it didn't come out. Josephus, the Jewish um, historian from the early, the early first century, or 2nd century, wrote that that veil was four inches thick. So to think, in one book, one, one author I found described as, if you tied horses on either end and tried to rip it apart, horses couldn't rip it apart. It was that thick of a veil, of a curtain. And yet, I think, that, I think the, reason, the reason the whole purpose of God making it thick was to signify the importance But then when it was rent, it was made clear that God was doing it. Man could never have done that. But I believe that's when the old covenant ended and the new covenant began. But that veil showed that there was a place where man was not worthy to go, was not able to go. That we needed someone, somebody to make us holy. And that's where Christ comes in. Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 11, But Christ being come and a high priest of good things to come by a greater 
and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean, sanctified as the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Isn't that amazing to think about that if God was willing to overlook the sins of the people by an annual sacrifice of animal's blood, how much greater power and strength or and, and recognition that God would have of the blood of his own son being offered. And I think it's something that we can often take for granted and take lightly. But I'm thankful that um, when we have our communion services, the seriousness that we take it as a church to remember what God did, what Christ did in um, shedding his blood for us. But because of that, because that Christ did not come to just offer a sacrifice as a high priest, to offer an animal at the temple, but that he was, he made a greater sacrifice, his own blood, and he was willing, and then that made him, sorry, he made him able then to enter the holies, not just the holy of holies here on earth, but the, to enter heaven with God, the ultimate, the most holy place. It's so much better. Because of that greater sacrifice, it was now not just an annual thing, it was permanent. And I think as believers in, in 2,000 years removed from the Jewish practice, we may take it for granted that this is a permanent remission of our sins, but yet it is. But the blood of Jesus is so much greater than the blood of goats and of calves. First John 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all, from all sin. So like I said earlier, the blood of Jesus doesn't just cover it. It removes it. And that's one of the amazing things of the new covenant versus the old. Now picking up verse 15, we're going to look at the fact that God's word, it, talking about testament, so it's, it's, it's the New Testament that we have here today in front of us, but it's also the, the testament we have of that Jesus came to earth and died on the cross. But Hebrews 9, verse 15. And for this cause, he's made, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, and that being the Old Covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For if a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it of no strength at all while the testator liveth. 
Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Think about this. What is a testament? And uh, when I looked up the definition, the one definition is of like a will and testament. You make out your will so that people know what to do with your possessions after you're dead. For those of you who are married with children, I have a will and testament. And it dictates that if I die, what happens to my possessions? What happens to my children if they're under the age of 18? But I never really thought about it before. A will and testament has no power until I'm dead. It's very important that you get one if you have any possessions, if you have children, or you want, if you want, if you don't want the state deciding what happens to your children, you need to have a will and testament. But I never thought about before how worthless that piece of paper is until I'm dead. But then it becomes useful. Then it becomes powerful. Then it tells judges and the state and local officials what to do with my possessions. The same way, the New Testament without the death of Jesus would be the same. Just paper without the death of Christ. And so that was an interesting thing that stuck out to me as I was studying this. So not only was Christ's blood important to cover our sins, but his death was important so that the New Testament would carry the power and the weight of what it was meant to do. Then I had to think about the fact that, well, but he rose again. What if you had a will and testament and you died and then you were came back to life would it would it mean anything obviously not it would mean we didn't die but with Jesus he was dead he was in the grave three days and then he rose again and so he could come back and make sure that his testament and will and testament was fulfilled I had to think of the story I don't know if you've read it or seen it but the ultimate gift is kind of an allegory of what we're talking about this morning. A wealthy man, in his will, made some video clips to go along with the fulfilling of his will. And so after he was dead, he was still speaking to his family through the videos. And he made requirements to them But without somebody, once again, he was no longer alive. And so it took the business partner to make sure that his will and testament was fulfilled. But with Jesus, we don't need that. We don't need a friend or a business partner or someone to make sure that our will is carried out. Jesus is alive and he can ensure that. He rose again to give life and power to that testament. Picking at verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and of scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God had enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So it's saying that the first testament, the first covenant, required blood. 
But in that case, it was animal blood. But the but in the same way, the new covenant also required blood. And verse 22 is, is very key here. That without blood, there is no remission of sins. That is a, that's a rule of God back from the beginning of time. That when there was sin, blood was required to cover it. And we know even with the Cain and Abel. Cain tried to bring fruit and other things to show his to for his sacrifice, but God was not well pleased because it was not there was no shedding of blood. The same thing for us today. We can do good things, we can bring good things to God, but it will never be enough. It'll never cover our sins. Only the blood of Jesus will do that. Verse 23 uh, 23 and moving on. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. So the animal blood was not good enough for a purification of the Holy of Holies in heaven. That could only be done through Christ. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. For now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ once offered to bear the sins of many unto them that look for him, shall shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It makes clear there in verse 27 that we are all going to die. We're all going to stand before God. So we need Christ. We need his blood. Even those under the first covenant needed the blood of Christ to cover their sins. And that's why the amazing thing that Jesus, even as he put away the old covenant, covered the sins of those that were under the old covenant. I'm going to move on quickly. I wanted to get to all the way through verse 25 of chapter 10 because I believe it all goes together. And that didn't really fit to make another message. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not have ceased to be offered because the worship at once purged should have no more consequence of sins. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And that verse was speaking of Christ there. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Even though God asked them to make those sacrifices... He found no pleasure in them. They, they did the job, but it wasn't really 
what God wanted in the end. Ultimately, he needed the blood of Jesus Christ to truly be able to forgive them. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice, offering, and burnt offerings, and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And that's speaking of the covenants. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Like I said earlier, it only covered it, it could not remove it. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Where the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said, For this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So basically Jesus was a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 that had never been recognized before. It could not be understood. How is it possible that sins be remembered no more? Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And that's speaking of heaven. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. So just as Moses had sprinkled all the vessels in the, ten- in the temple, or in the, even in the, um, the, the tent and what they had carried through the, the, the wilderness with them until they reached the land of Israel. He had sprinkled blood on everything for purifying. But now, with, Jesus, with the blood of Jesus, it's possible to have our, even our hearts sprinkled, something that the Israelites could not have and could not do. Even if they wanted it, it was not possible. 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. We are living under the new covenant. We are not required to go up to the temple once a year. We're not required to fulfill all the feasts. And so I think the concern was there that especially those of the Jewish faith that had never, that they had been used to all these customary things that they would go and do. Now that they recognized that that was no longer a requirement under the new covenant, the challenge was don't just sit at home and think it's all done. The work is done and now you can just slide in to home base. You must continue. We must continue to walk with other believers we must continue to help lift up one another challenge one another and we must not 
let off exhorting one another. Even as we see the day approaching, meaning even if we recognize here we are 2,000 years later, we're much closer to the return of Christ, we should not let up, we should not lax off, but keep going and be faithful. So my challenge to you this morning is I hope that we, it makes us grateful, thankful, into a season of thanksgiving here, not to forget to be thankful for what Christ has done, to not take for granted what his blood has done for us, and to not take one another for granted in our church, but to challenge one another, hold fast in our faith. God bless you.